Good morning, Redeemer family. It's good to see you all this morning and um, to gather together to sing of Jesus, um, to sing to Jesus, to praise him. Um, we're going to continue this morning in uh, the gospel of Luke as we've been journeying now for quite some time. And so we'll be in chapter 11 this morning if you'd like to op- follow along in your own copy of the scriptures. Um, in, my, in my previous life as a basketball player, um, just to be clear, I don't, I, that's, I'm not talking about like a, a previous life that I actually, I'm talking about this life, uh, but it feels like another life. Uh, but my, my, in, my, in my former days, in my former glory as a basketball player, there wasn't much glory to it. Um, I, I, I would play pickup basketball, played play at school and played uh, in parks or uh, different places. And I learned early in college and when I, when I would show up at the rec center, that there would always be some old guy who was coming to play. And naively, I would see him walk in and I'd be like, I got gramps, I'm guarding gramps, I'm, I'm gonna stay with him, thinking he'll be slower, I won't have to run quite as hard, uh, I can hang with him, how good can he really be? And the first time grandpa would get the ball, I, I probably even gave him a little space, I don't want him to break a hip or anything. Um, and from that moment on, Gramps would take me to school. He wouldn't miss a shot. And he would, every time my head was turned on defense, he would make a back cut and get an easy layup. It was, it was bad. Um, and, and I learned something in the gym that day. When Grandpa walks in, you want him on your team. <laughs> You don't want to play against grandpa because there's no glory in beating him and there's a lot of shame as he takes you to school. Uh, our eyes deceive us, don't they? They'll, they'll tell us to look for one thing, but often it's the thing right in front of us that we completely overlook. And in today's passage, the crowds, they, they've got messed up eyesight. They're, they're watching Jesus minister, uh, but they don't get it. They don't comprehend what they're seeing they don't see what's really happening here in chapter 11. Uh, here we see Jesus had, had begun uh, to, to talk to them about this, to talk about the, the brokenness of, of what they see, how they're looking for the wrong things. And so today, as we see Jesus talking to the crowds, I, I want us to see four realities about what it is to see rightly. Um, and so we'll see number one, the sign we want. Number two, the sign we need. Number three, uh, blind to the sign. And lastly, we'll see eyes to see. Uh, let's go to the Lord now and, and pray together. Take just a moment uh, to pray for your own, your own soul this morning, that the Lord would speak to you, that he give you ears to hear and a heart that would receive the truth of his word. Pray for yourself. Would you take just a minute and pray for me uh, that I would speak only according to what God's word says and how his spirit would have us to hear this morning.
Oh Lord, would you help us now? Father, where our hearts and our minds are distracted and they're drawn to other things this morning, to other things that would take our attention away, uh, Lord, would you, by your spirit, would you do a work uh, to, to point us to Christ, to give us eyes to see, to give us soft hearts to receive. Lord, would you do this for your glory and for our good, for our joy. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We'll begin with number one, the sign we want. Uh, an interesting thing has, is happening here in this chapter. Uh, the, the progression uh, that we're seeing in chapter 11 is pretty familiar. Uh, at the beginning of the chapter, we see that Jesus has gone alone to pray. And then his disciples, as he comes back to his disciples, uh, they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And if you remember, we walked through this beautiful teaching that Jesus gives on how to pray, how he, he gives them the Lord's prayer. So he's, got, he's had time alone with his father, then he spends time in fellowship and teaching with his brothers and sisters, his disciples. And, and from there, he goes out, out into the crowds and he begins to minister. And he even drives out a demon we saw earlier in this chapter. And this is a common pattern in the ministry of Jesus. Alone with the father, joining with his brothers in community and then together out on mission. But, but something interrupts the flow here, doesn't it? And we're gonna start seeing this more and more as we walk through Luke, that, that this flow gets interrupted. And the interruption is this, it's people, it's the crowds. As Jesus performs this miracle, he gets two groups of people speaking up out of the crowd saying, uh, last week we saw in verse 15, there's this group of people that are charging him with this wild accusation. They say, you're casting out demons by the power of Satan. That's how you're doing it. Sure, you healed a guy, uh, but you're in league with Satan. And very few things interrupt the beauty of a moment of ministry than someone saying, uh, very few things can interrupt it more than someone accusing you of working with Satan. So that's kind of a downer. Um, but then this other group is speaking up and we see this a verse later in verse 16 that they're saying almost the opposite. They respond by saying, show us a sign from heaven. Like that was a cute trick, Jesus, but show us something real. Show us a real sign of your divine power. Then we'll believe. That's, this isn't enough. We're gonna need something bigger. We're not impressed. Michaela is not impressed. Sorry, that was a funny reference. Um, the, both of these groups are kind of frustrating, Right? They're, they're frustrating to hear. Uh, you, you remember playing a game with people like this, uh, maybe growing up. Students, you probably know, know this, kids. You, you may recall, you've played a game, maybe it's a card game or a video game or a board game or something, and, and you win the game and you have the satisfaction of winning the game and then what does your opponent say? I was just lucky. I wasn't even trying. I didn't really try. That's, I was, you just had luck. I, I could have I tried harder. Or maybe you finish and they go, You cheated. You're a cheater. Uh, don't, some of you are looking at your brother or sister. Um, nothing kind of takes the enjoyment out of a victory, right? Then a poor sport. And this is what's happening here. Jesus heals and the wicked crowd is saying, we're unimpressed. Show us something real, Jesus. Or like last week, you cheated. You cheated, you're working with Satan. So it's a tough crowd. And with all that, this is what Jesus begins to say in verse 29. 
He said, it, it tell, Luke tells us that as the crowds were increasing, so just on that note, it, this isn't stopping the growing of the crowds. Like th- surely there are probably more people wanting to be healed, but there are also more of this coming, more uh, doubters, more accusations. So as the crowds were increasing, he began saying, this generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign. So Jesus is pointing out something, not, not just something evil about the response of the crowd. He's saying there's actually something deficient in the hearts of the people. Something in the heart of the crowd. The, this crowd is growing, but faith is not growing. And, and he's beginning to focus now on this second group. What are they asking for? He said they're demanding a sign, which is, I think, a little bit wild for our hearts to hear, right? We're just going to wait. What? Like, because literally, what has the ministry of Jesus been other than a ministry of signs? It, it's been signs. Like everywhere signs, that's a song reference. Uh, we, we've seen lepers cleansed. We've seen paralytics taken, taking up their mat and walking. We've seen withered bodies made whole. We've seen demon ravaged bodies stand up straight. We've seen people healed long distance. Shoot, we've, we've even seen a funeral interrupted so that the body could get back up out of the casket and come back to life. And you can't just say, well, well, these people, they weren't around for all that. They didn't see all of that um, because they literally just saw a miracle. They just saw a demon come out of a person, someone who had been mute, oppressed by a demon, possessed by a demon. And, and that, be, that person is able now to talk. So we can't just say they didn't see it. And not only that, the crowd said, it said we read that the crowds were amazed. So how can they say, show us a sign? And of course, lest we begin to think these guys are idiots. How do they not get it? This isn't like your kid walking into the room at the end of a movie with 20 minutes left and going, hey, tell me about the movie. I don't know. Like they were around, they've seen it. Um, but we would say, oh, I've, if I just been there, I, I, here's how I would have responded. No, don't for a minute think that you aren't just like them at times. Of course we are. How often have we seen God's provision in our life? He provides what we need. He carries us through suffering. He protects us and blesses us in a thousand ways that we don't deserve. But when the first hint of new suffering comes, aren't we prone to despair? Oh, why, Lord? What's going on? Why, why would you allow this to happen to me? Have you forgotten me? Or when that first wave of doubt begins to creep in, Lord, are you, are you even there, Lord? Show me something. Give me a sign, something I can cling on to, something tangible. And so Jesus is warning them, but let's, let's certainly hear him warning us as well that we are prone to chase after signs. That we're prone to seek something other than the gospel, something other than Jesus to satisfy. So yes, we are like them, but there's also something really specific going on with them. The, 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 this generation of, of Jews had a particular hardness of their hearts, a particular blindness to the beauty of Jesus. And we saw it last week. Some are claiming his powers from Satan. But today's group, they're demanding a sign. And I think they have a little more theological nuance to their approach. These are, are, are the more theologically adept. And they're, they're saying, we've, we've caught Jesus here. They're saying, Jesus, these, are, these miracles are neat. But, but show us something that we'll recognize. 
We want a sign. And what they meant by a sign is give us some sort of undeniable link to the power of God from the past. Repeat something from one of the great prophets. Moses had parted the sea and had brought on plagues. Elijah called down fire from heaven. Do something like that, Jesus. These miracles you're doing, they're like little black cats. They're little pretty little fountains that you've put out in the street. Bottle rockets are shooting off. Put something up in the sky. We want something big. Something from one of the great prophets. So something huge that we can see. And, and I don't think they're asking this question in, in good faith. It's, it's a gotcha question. I, I can just imagine them asking with a wry little smile. Like, give us a sign, Jesus. Prove it. Prove it. And we know that, it's, that they're not asking in good faith because of the way Jesus answers. Which leads us to number two, the sign that we need. So here Jesus replies to the growing crowd and he says, this generation is an evil generation. It demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. He's saying, you want a sign? Well, guess what? You won't get one. You only get the sign of Jonah. And so these theologically minded critics are going, the sign of Jonah? Like Jonah's not even a sign prophet, Jesus. Jonah was a preaching prophet and he was a cowardly one at that. So, so really what you're saying, Jesus, is we get nothing. You're giving us nothing. And this, I think, would have been really disappointing for them to hear. But I don't think they were surprised. That's, that's what they expected. But Jesus isn't saying this to comfort them uh, or anything like that. He, he's, he's barbing them here. Look in verse 31. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Jesus is saying, look, you aren't the hero here. You aren't like the faithful people of God of old, waiting in Egypt for rescue, looking for a rescuer, yearning for a sign that God's covenant promises are about to roll into town. No, you are like sinful Nineveh with the freight train of God's judgment rolling down the tracks, heading for the city. And unless you receive a message of God's judgment and his mercy, you will be destroyed. This is Jesus telling them, what you need is not a sign. Signs are for those who long for the Messiah. No, you need a prophet to tell you about the coming judgment for sin, about the mercy that he has for those who repent. And it's, it's a harsh comparison. These are our likely Jews. And so I think we, we read it and we go, well, why not just give them a sign, Jesus? Why not just call them as, as, as you had other disciples and call them to follow you? And I think the text is telling us it's because he knows the evil in their hearts. These are not the poor in spirit. These are not those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Next week, in fact, he's gonna go further. He's gonna condemn them for their pride and their hypocrisy. Judgment is barreling toward them. And like the Ninevites, unless someone is gracious enough to tell them, destruction is imminent. And then Jesus takes it a step further and he tells them, in fact, you aren't just like Nineveh, you're worse. Your wickedness is so bad that all of history is about to rise up and tell you how badly you're messing this up. Look at verse 31. 
He says, the queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. The queen of the South, that actually sounds like he's starting off on a fairy tale or something. Uh, but the queen of the South is just the queen of Sheba, uh, from, uh, who's a pagan ruler that we see in 1 Kings. And she traveled, with the, uh, she traveled a great distance to come and to meet Solomon. And, and, and why did she come to Solomon? It wasn't because of signs. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't fire from heaven. It wasn't even his great power. She, it was the wisdom that she sought. He had wisdom from God. And after talking with Solomon and having her questions answered uh, and seeing God's people worshiping, she said to Solomon, blessed be the Lord, your God. She, she praised God. And so Jesus is saying, if this pagan queen was here today, she would say, you're doomed. All I got were some wise answers from Solomon. And I got to see a few animal sacrifices. That was enough for me to turn to the Lord. And here you are. You've got something way better. You have Jesus, the very wisdom of God in a person. He's standing right in front of you and you're asking for a light show? Jesus is, is letting them have it. And he goes on, what, what if the Ninevites were here? Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. He's saying, if the Ninevites were here, they'd be saying, look, all we got was a sermon from a dude who hated us and wanted us to die. And God literally forced him to come to us. We got no signs, no majesty, just a message about God's judgment. And it broke us. It broke us and we repented. We received his mercy. Which leads us to number three, blind to the sign. There's blindness to this sign. The crowd was convinced they needed this sign from heaven. And Jesus is saying, you're missing it. You're missing the sign from heaven. You need to look at me. And in fact, in verse 32, he says, and look, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah, if you, many of you know the story of Jonah. If you don't, Jonah, is, Jonah has to be the worst of the prophets. <laughs> and yet an entire city repented. I mean, think of the lengths to which God went to save the people of Nineveh. Jonah, Jonah hated the Ninevites. He thought he was better than them. So he, he refused to go there because he knew that if he obeyed God and went, that God would save them because that's how good God is. So to keep them from knowing God, he ran away. This is officially on like the things not to do as a prophet list. See, he's basically the opposite of the Good Samaritan. He, he didn't just step to the other side of the road to, to, because he heard of, of the sad shape that the Ninevites were in. No, he tried to step to the other side of the world. And when, when running away didn't work, as the waves battered the ship that he had stowed away on, with his guilt and God's opposition weighing heavily on him, instead of repenting and crying out to God, what does he do? He keeps running. And he runs straight to the bottom of the sea. 
He was willing to be hurled into a, a watery grave, to let his lungs fill up with water, to be buried at sea, all to avoid bringing the love and grace of God to Nineveh. But as you know, God intervened and said, oh, you're still going. I will bend the rules of nature to show, to show mercy to whom I choose to show mercy. I will not let you drown yourself and destroy yourself because I am going to redeem the hateful people of Nineveh. And so the prophet would be swallowed up by, not by death, but by a fish because he was to be a vessel of God's mercy. But before he could be a vessel of God's mercy, he had to first receive God's mercy. The Lord uses broken vessels to draw people to himself, doesn't he? But the gospel is so much better than the broken vessels who bring it. So much better. You and I don't need a sign. We don't need perfect messengers, flawless parents, flawless teachers or pastors. No, we need Jesus. The true message of God is here. Imagine when the people of Nineveh heard how hard Jonah tried to avoid telling them about God's mercy. And Jonah was not a good prophet, not a good vessel, but God's message was true and they believed. So now these crowds, they want a sign, but that's not what they needed. They didn't need another sign. They needed the one who was in front of them. They needed the message. And just like Jonah stepping through the city gates of Nineveh, Jesus stepped in front of this crowd, but he was no reluctant prophet. The greater Jonah is on the scene. So think for a minute of his journey, the journey of Jesus. Jonah had run to the other side of the world to avoid sharing God's mercy with people that he hated. But Jesus left the glory of heaven took on pain and weakness to stand here and show them God's mercy, the people who hated him. Jonah was so committed to his hatred that he hurled himself into the sea to receive God's wrath for his disobedience. But Jesus was so committed to love that he hurled himself into the grave, not for his disobedience, but to receive the Father's wrath for the disobedience of others. For three days, the faithless prophet, he was spared, kept alive in the belly of a fish so that Nineveh might be saved. But for three days, the author of life, he went into the grave. He was dead, buried in the belly of death and the grave so that all who would trust him might be saved. And so Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, this is your Jonah moment. All the Ninevites got was Jonah and a sermon. But you get Christ. You get God with us in the flesh, the wisdom and mercy of God in the flesh in front of you. The better Jonah was there. And he, he's not just there, but he is also yours. And he gives us everything that we need. He's not flashy. 
He doesn't do the big light show. He doesn't always wow with the fire from heaven, but he brings dead hearts to life and he gives mercy. He removes shame. He gives you hope. And in his resurrection, he says to us, I am the resurrection and the life. You want a miracle? You want a sign? I'm resurrection. And the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live, he says in John 11. He's saying, I've led the way through death and I'm gonna bust you out of the grave if you trust in me. One day you will live forever with me. And so here he is proclaiming to these people and now to us this morning that even through a mediocre vessel, even through, even through an okay sermon, he speaks to us through the son. He speaks to us by his word. He speaks to us through his spirit. And if you, if you don't know him, if you've, if you've never met Jesus, he can be yours today. And he'll stay with you tomorrow, day after day. He'll carry your hurts. He'll forgive you again and again. He'll comfort you when you're anxious. And he'll hold you up when you suffer. It's not flashy. It's not magnificent. But at the same time, it's the most magnificent thing there is. It's the most beautiful thing that you could possibly know to know the love of Christ. Which leads us to number four we'd have eyes to see. So Jesus begins to turn and he's, he kind of moves into this little parable about sight and about seeing um, as he speaks to them. He says in verse 33, no one lights a lamp and puts it in the cellar or under a basket, but on a lampstand so that those who come in may see its light. So he's kind of closing this section with this parable of light. And he's saying, there's only one thing you really need when you're in the dark. In this room of the world, Jesus is saying, there's only one true lamp. Jesus is the only light. There is no other light. His gospel, his resurrection, his grace, his humility, his infinite patience with you. This is the only light that there is for life. And when you see that, when you see it, you want his light to be on a lampstand in your, in your life front and center, lighting up everything. Flashy signs and, and fireworks, they don't help in a dark room for like a second, but they're gone. You need a lamp. You need constant light and he brings it. But many don't see it, do they? Verse 34, he says, your eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is also full of light, but when it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Many are consumed with their eyes with anything but the light. We, we live in a culture where we are entertaining and amusing ourselves to death. We're consumed with temporary beauties. Things that are here for a second and then gone, but they, they captivate us. We're anxious about our lives and what we will do today and all of the things that will give us satisfaction for a moment. But if you walk into a completely dark room, it's, it's impossible to know what you're seeing. 
that may be a comfy couch right there in this dark room. I don't know, it's pitch black. It could also be a pool of piranhas. That'd be a really weird room. Um, but, but you can't tell. It's dark. How can you know the difference? You need light. And when the light is on, then you can rest on the comfy couch. But when the light is off, I think that's it. I think that's good. I think that's what I need. Verse 35, he says, take care then that the light in you is not darkness. And this is Christ's warning to the crowds. Some had called his works the work of Satan. Others were doubting. They were living in the dark. He brought the light, but they hated it. They loved the dark. They wanted the light snuffed out. Later, Jesus is going to cry out from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's saying they can't see, they're blind. They don't realize what's happening here. Remember, Christ had called them an evil generation. There, there was something broken in them. They were in the dark, they were, they were blind. But I think we need to hear Christ's words to this generation and, and say, there's, and just recognize there's also something broken in our generation. The lights are off. And Romans 1 says, of those who walk in darkness long enough, this is what, if, if you've walked in darkness long enough, this is what it's like. Your thinking became worthless. Their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. When you are blind, you will choose foolishness because you can't see. That's, so, so what's the only way out? What's the only way out of blindness, of being fools, of living in the dark? To be a Christian is to have the eyes of your heart opened to the light of Christ. To believe who he is and what he has done. And if you're, if you're here today and you've, you, maybe you've never really looked at Jesus, like you've never really beheld him. I, I, let me just tell you for a second, if that's you, let me, I just wanna tell you what he's done for you. He, he died, he, he was killed on a Roman cross for your sin. He was taken to his execution for your blindness, your darkness. The perfect creator died so that you could be forgiven and he took all the suffering, all the shame that you deserved. But then he rose again. He didn't just take your guilt and your shame. He rose again and he gives you life now. He offers you this life. This is, this is Jesus. And I, and I would encourage you, if you don't know him, maybe you've just never seen him for who he is. You've never wanted to give him the time of day. Maybe it's just seemed like a crutch to you or something you don't really need. But let me tell you, it's the only way to see. Jesus is what you need. And I, I would encourage you if, you, if you've never seen him, if you've never known him, cry out to, to God today. Ask the Father, help me to see Jesus for who he is. Help me to know Jesus. When you, when you pray that, he will answer. He will answer. He's not hiding from you. Everyone who seeks will find, Jesus says. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Seek him. Acts 17 tells us that, that he would be placed us where we are so that we might seek him and find him. He's not far from us. 
So if you don't know Jesus, ask him. At the end of the service today, you can ask people. You can talk to somebody. Ask, ask God to show you who he is. Or maybe you're a Christian and, and the light of Christ that once seemed really bright to you just feels dim now. Look at uh, the next verse, verse 36. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no part of in darkness, it will be entirely illuminated as when a lamp shines its light on you. And notice it's a lamp shining its light on you. It's its light, not yours. Have you looked to the light? And, and let me ask this maybe more so. If, if, you're, if you're feeling that the light of Christ is dim, have you looked to the glorious riches of the grace of Jesus and then just gone on to, to look at other lights? other riches, other graces. And I, I think like this wicked generation, when we find ourselves in this position, running to other lights, we can kind of swing one of two ways. When we find ourselves dissatisfied with Christ and when our affections for him are low, our, our sinful hearts tend to do one of two things. We either run after those false lights, we go for them, or we work harder to try to create more light. We ramp up all the signs of spiritual life. We're gonna make our goals and our resolutions. I'll, I'll clean myself up. I've got 20 new disciplines I'm starting this year. I'm gonna wake up earlier. I'm gonna read more. I'm night, nightly family devotions. This will bring the light of Christ. But no, matter, no matter which of these camps you find yourself in, whether you're seeking light everywhere but Jesus or whether you're trying harder and harder to live the spiritual life you think you're supposed to live, I, I believe the scriptures give us the same answer for both. And the answer is this, look to Jesus again and again and again, look to Jesus. And I don't want to just leave us kind of there. I want, I want to give us two practical ways to do that. Two practical ways to look at Jesus. Number one, Jesus-centered hearing. Maybe, maybe your, your time in the word is marked by uh, marveling, uh, or not marked by marveling at the beauty of Jesus. Is, is, that, is that how it is for you when you go to God's word? Do you marvel at Jesus? Do you marvel at his attributes? Are you floored by his patience and, your, and his grace? Because I think it's so easy for our readings to instead be marked by other things, by our pet topics. We like to, to trace, that, go down rabbit holes and, and maybe you love the history of God's word. So you, you like to dig into fun factoids and, and points of interest that are fun to discuss at a Bible study. Or maybe, maybe you just love the sense of accomplishment. I did it, I read. Uh, aren't you proud of me, Lord? I did it, I'm, I'm, I'm another day. How about in your, in your sermon listening? As one of your pastors and your elders here, we, we want so badly uh, to present Christ to you each week. But, but certainly, there are better preachers. It's so easy to just sit back and, and passively take in sermons, uh, passively listen each week. And, and then we come away with things like, I liked that, or I didn't like that, or I wish he'd said that, or I wish he hadn't said that. Lord, help us that we don't just become critics 
and connoisseurs of sermons. This is, this is why every week we take communion after the preaching of God's word. It's why we sing and we worship him. Why? Because preaching isn't the point. Jesus is the point. Jesus is what we need. Friends, let's become enjoyers of Jesus this year. In your reading, in your listening on a Sunday morning, what did you see of Christ? Not, what a great topic, what a great passage. It was an okay sermon, but oh, what a great Christ. What a great Christ. And then number two, Jesus-centered living. In each moment and in every discipline you set out to undertake, in each conversation that you're in, the Lord Jesus Christ is with you. Jesus is with you. In your prayers, he's with you. When, when you're praying, you're praising Christ. We, we don't come to him seeking to impress Jesus, to earn his approval. Rather, we're looking daily to his cross and resting in him and living as children of the Father, loved by the Son. Even in your confessions and in your repentance, as he shows you the dark corners of your heart, let's not run away in shame. But let's turn to the cross. He is the only remedy there is for our failures and our sin and our stumbling again and again after the same sin. He is the one. Let's go to him. And so we grieve when we repent. We grieve how, we've, how our sin drew us from Christ. We confess how we overlooked him. How we looked for something else. We wanted other riches, other signs, other things. And then we we just sit and we let the lamp shine on us and we remember the forgiveness that comes from being in the light with Jesus. This is the Christian life. Repentance and faith in Jesus again and again and the next day and the next day. Church, the greater Jonah is here don't underestimate him. There is none more beautiful. There is no greater sign that you will find. There's nothing else to look for. There is no deeper joy out there for you. Go to Jesus. Let's go to him now. Just right where you are, I wanna invite you to pray and just to confess to the Lord. Here are all of the, the other ways. Confess the other ways that you've sought to be satisfied. What, what is it that's distracted you from him? What, it is, what is it that you've tried to fill yourself with rather than just enjoying him? Take those things to the Lord now.
Oh Lord, would you, would you overwhelm us with the beauty of Christ? Of the kindness that he's expressed to us, the kindness that, that he still shows us moment after moment. And would his light burn so brightly in our hearts? As the light of the Father has shone on us in the face of Jesus, would that light stay, stay strong in us? Lord, would we not be moths drawn to a thousand other flames, but would you draw us again and again to Christ? Oh, we need your help. We are, we are a faithless people. We are a distracted people. We are too easily satisfied. But what we acknowledge, what we confess today is there is only one satisfaction for us. There is only one hope. Lord, we want to count every other gain as loss. Help us that we might know Jesus. Help us by your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.